All right, yo. Welcome back. Um, first, first and foremost, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to uh, my friend who's a music producer, Roddy Rodney Retro. Um, at him on Twitter at Rodney Retro. Um, he came up with our theme song that has been the past uh, new theme song for the like past, past like, four, five episodes. Four or five episodes, and I feel like it's it's uh, it's been too long. I feel like. From when we did that first episode with the new theme song, I should have shouted him out. But you know, it's never too late to give a person their roses. So shout out, shout out to Rod. Also, um, for your listeners to give a sneak a sneak peek behind the scenes in the omnibus, we we don't record these week to week. Uh, we record these ahead of time because they're not super timely. So by the time we got the new theme song, I had like four or five episodes that still need to be edited. So <laughs> like the monstrous one, we we got the new theme song like. Around the time of uh, the Pretty Deadly or Doomsday pretty Clock deadly. episode, uh, but no, like it was a Pretty Deadly episode. But yeah, but like I had so many episodes queued up, and it's like, well, I haven't finished the Monsters one way before you the theme song there. Right. So again, and, and so for anyone listening, why didn't you recognize them? You guys snubbed them in those first three or four episodes. Like, hey, if we could travel back in time and and somehow re-record it, then we we could have, but I didn't want to do that kind of work. Yeah, of course not. We want to, like, you know, keep it live and authentic, you know, especially since, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to make big moves out here. And I, res- I respect the hustle, you know. We're all out here trying to, uh, I guess, also, ride our that, own horse. And Phil, Phil disagreed with me on the opening theme, uh, which one he wanted to use, but I took some executive authority. <laughs> and he's, he's uh, I, I just chose one myself. Oh, my God. I mean, which it worked out, so I'm fine with it. And uh yeah, so they, we got I mean well we got we got tons we got tons of songs lined up on deck, right? Because we got we got the new theme song, maybe you know, eventually when the pandemic is over, because it's never gonna be over until like we all get vaccinated or something. I don't know, right? We could do like a live thing and just like you know, chop it up. Hell, uh you know, just put on some Timberland boots and go stomping in, around New York or something. I don't I don't know. Right, Do people really wear Timberland boots to go out to New York in the most urban city in the world, in the country? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I, when I think Timberland boots, I think of hiking. But no, when I think of Timberland boots, I think of uh, snow or stomping people out. <laughs> yeah. Stomping people out. Oh, yes. yeah. I should say for anybody, any fans, anyone who's fans of the old theme song, and you're like, hey, why you change the theme song? You guys suck. Uh, I just want to say that had a non-commercial license. Yeah. So now we can actually ask for money now with the new theme song. It's the music. Yes. We yes. own it. We own it. Lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah. There we go. Ah, see, look at that. Right. We got. We hold. We hold rights now. Yeah. And speaking of rights, all right, we want to talk to you about your new book. I know that wasn't my smoothest transition, but like honestly, that was the <laughs> best one I could come up with within like ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this book is creator-owned, so I guess that works. Yes. See, it it, it all the the Kakaku Kakaku. Kaka, oh, it's Kakaku. Yeah. All right, so it all went according to the Kakaku. And for my fans who don't know Japanese, Kakaku translates to plan. Yeah, I I think. Yes. I don't. Anybody who doesn't know, look up Death Note meme. Was it the Death Note meme? I thought it was the. the Death, uh, Ah yes, yes it was definitely. It's yeah, like I, making fun of like fan. I don't know if you ever watched fan, fan, fan dubs. Yes, fan dubs, but or fan subs, but they leave it untranslated. 
words for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I because I, I keep thinking it was Bleach, but no, it, you're right, it was uh, Death Note. Uh, there you go. There's a better segue. Anime influences. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> there's there's another one there as well. See, oh yeah. man, we should do an episode on Death Note. It's only uh, uh it's only uh twelve volumes. Maybe I maybe I wouldn't actually mind. I would have to go out and get the manga. I enjoyed the first season of the anime. Second season, not so much. Yeah, Second I mean season. that 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 was the fault the the failing of a lot of these things i realized is that the first season is always usually very good and then the second uh, the season thing, the only, my only contingency is that one of the episodes you have to watch is potatoes the potato, the chip, potato one. chip one i mean <laughs> i have no problem with that it's fine because i think that's I, what I used, like, to, I used to know someone who was a big a big fan of death note but they they read the he read the manga first yeah uh uh and then watch the anime later, yeah. and he's just like, this, this is so over the top. It's not like in the in the manga at all. True, because it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's a lot more subdued. Yeah, but it's like this is why I watch it because of how over the top it was. All right, so I guess that's that's so a review of Death Note is coming to a podcast near you. But before we you know get sidetracked about Death Note, which is extremely excellent, we want to talk to you about this uh very lauded book all right that's created her own by uh tilly walden called on a sunbeam yeah uh, award-winning uh trying to see let me double check which awards it won nominated nominated 2017 eisner award for best digital comic won 2018 la times book prize this is probably you know it's been called like a lot of people called it the best comic it came out in 2018 best book of the year uh for those who don't know, Tilly Walden is a big kind of hot up and coming. I don't know if she's considered no, up and coming. No, I don't think she's up and coming anymore. She's she, she, she's just up already. Yeah, she like she like pulled up, punched like whoever she needs to in the face, and was like, "Yo, I'm here," and like we applaud her for it. Yeah, so Tilly Walden, she's got five comics. She won twenty. She just won the 2018 Eisner for her memoir, Spinning. Making her one of the youngest Eisner Awards winner ever, and like, and it's there's something right now. We're gonna, we're gonna be at least me. I'm not gonna speak for Phil. I'm gonna be the petty, petty struggling cartoonist right here <laughs> and say she's got all these awards and she's lauded and she's published five books. She's only 25. <laughs> yeah, I mean, younger than either of us. Yes, yeah, yes, indeed. Uh. But, I mean, I'm not bitter about it, though, because, like, you know, you have people in their 40s still breaking into comics, which is quite all right. I'm not bitter towards her. I'm more bitter about the industry's stuff around her, which we can talk about a little later. We have, a, we have kind of a funny story, not about Tilly Walden, but somewhat related to her and with mm. one, of, one of our professors. <laughs> we have a funny story. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, Honest Sunbeam, uh, originally a webcomic, came out. I think in 2016, wrapped up in 2018, which is about when the book also came out right, for a second. Right. Because I believe what, you... she was doing. She was doing this. Uh, because she was doing this webcomic as well as doing her. I think her first published book was spinning. Right. Uh no, I think it was something else. Or maybe uh, maybe maybe spinning was around the same time. Because spinning was uh 2017. Okay. Yeah, I think you are correct. You want to summarize it? Should we just read the back of the book? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think at this point now we've been reading the back of the book. Oh, I don't have a, a thing on the back of the book. Oh, wait. Yes, right. I do. All right. Two okay. timelines, second chances, one love, 
A woman joins a crew to rebuild beautiful broken structures throughout space and finds a new family. Two teen girls meet at boarding school and fall deeply in love only to learn the pain of loss. So in reading that uh, synopsis on the back of the book, it essentially, in my mind anyway, translates to uh, slice of life drama in space. Uh, For the first half of the book. Uh, that that really is what that really does sum up the book. Then it sort of becomes like a space adventure, a little bit. Yes. Give a more detailed summary. The story is about this young girl. So in the future, it's in the future. Man is able to go to space. Uh, even though I say man loosely because there's actually no male characters. The, yeah, there's the no male characters at all. Like this is all uh, every every character you come across in this book is uh, female. I mean, it's, well, it's I, female and one one non-binary character. There we go. Yes, thank you for uh, catching that for me, Eric. Then, I appreciate that. Uh, the cat, the cat is male, according to Tilly Wallet. She, she's like, what? that's that's a, that's a token male. <laughs> yeah, Wait, what, a token. what cat? There's a cat somewhere, I guess, at some point. I don't really remember a cat. I don't remember the cat. I remember the fox. I don't remember a cat. Uh, maybe it's the fox. Well, she said, but she said like that's her token. She said anyway, that's her token male character. Oh, okay. Uh, but anyways, uh, it's in the future. A uh, story about a young girl named Mia who joins a crew that's kind of in charge of rebuilding, restoring structures in like various regions of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one timeline, and she gets to know this crew of you know space art restorers essentially, <laughs> uh, which is it's already pretty pretty idiosyncratic sci-fi story and the other timeline and the eventually intersect is you see mia's time in space boarding school her getting a relationship with this girl uh, kind of dealing with the stuff in high school that everybody hates clicks and being bullied by the popular kids mm-hmm. uh, you know f- trying to find your place a lot of, a lot of coming in age YA stuff and this is this is a book that's big you know tilly wall is a big name in traditional publishing Every agent that I queried, you know, like the that that took graphic novels, all listed like Tilly Walden. Tilly if Walden. not this book, then spinning. Then spinning, yeah. So they either wanted like slice slice of life with like hints of something else, or like a memoir. Um, but like actually sitting reading on a sunbeam, uh, I I did not I did not not like it. So I I enjoyed it. Um, it was a bit slow in the beginning. But then, like once <laughs> a bit slow, I a think bit it's slow. It, you're absolutely right. It was it was very slow in the very beginning. But because of that slowness, we get time to like sit and learn about these characters. We get to learn about Mia's backstory and why she is the way she is. And uh, like towards the end, that's where we get into like more fantasy stuff. Like we get to see like celestial beings and understanding of um this uh planetary colony and why these other planets are trying to go after it um though we really don't get to see much of it though but i mean as a uh cisgendered black male i enjoyed this story i don't know how did you feel about eric Uh, so i think first off i think that's important to uh the note that neither of us are exactly the target audience for no not not at all you know, being not being teenage girls, not being uh, queer, LGBT, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I it took me a while. It took a really 
a long time for me to get into the book. Like I noted in the notes that it's not until about halfway of the book that you get into what I guess you actually call the second act. <laughs> and it's not until like 160 pages in yeah. you actually learn the backstory of to the to the people in charge of the crew members. Um, mm-hmm. Alma and Char. Char? Yeah. Char. Alma and Char. I think like, I mean, it's a good conversation about pacing. It uh, is. So let's see. So let's 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 dial back for a minute. When we talk okay. about when people talk about pacing, right? When people talk about something that's too slow or too boring, what does that actually mean? Because there are, you know, it's not just a matter of not just literally a matter of how fast or how plot driven the story goes. Mm-hmm. You know, there are movies that are very that some people consider too slow. Movies and shows that some people consider too slow that I love, and there are some that are just like relentlessly fast paced that I don't think are necessarily good. Um, I th- I found that when people say pacing, what they are really meaning is that there are parts of a story that they they feel like they there are the uninteresting parts that they feel like they have to slog their way through. They get to the interesting parts. Mm-hmm. There are parts of the story that are just not holding their interest for some reason. I'm trying to think of what's a good example. Uh, what's what's let's see what's a what's a story it doesn't have to be a comic though it could be a comic though. what's a story that you find that people will consider slow that you enjoy? Uh, something slow that I would enjoy. I would have to say ah, a berserk, berserk. Uh, like during the of course like certain arcs, right? Overall, it's a fantastic manga series from 1989. Uh, following the blind well one eyed swordman guts. And, like, his journey to get revenge on his former best friend. There are parts where, like, we don't even focus on Guts. It's, like, a whole story dedicated to, like, this kingdom and blah, blah, blah. But because of that setup, we get, a like, more of an understanding of how this world works. So it goes for world building, for one, as well as understanding the uh, dri- the character-drivenness of those characters within that world. And how we can, how we the audience, how we the audience are able to try and figure out how it's going to go up against our main character. So basically, it's kind of what you're saying. I haven't read Berserk, uh, but it sounds like even when it's not advancing the plot, they're still exploring something that you find compelling, whether it's character, whether it's the world. That's right. about right. Yes. I think a, that's good. I think an example I would give for myself is the movie Annihilation. Which a lot of people complain about yes. being slow. Some people really complain about being too slow. I think it works. Its pacing is, I think, is perfect because of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of this very unsettling horror story, but you're not really sure what's happening to these people, what's going on. Right. Like, there's a little bit of a mystery element to it. Um, I think. When people say there's there's a misunderstanding that's like, you know, there's not enough action, there's not enough plot. Um, I don't think that's necessarily. I mean, it's not something. It's not what you would call an action driven comic at all whatsoever. Um, because conversely, there I'm at the point now where I watch a lot of things with or read a lot of things with action sequences and they bore me. Right. <laughs> I think I'm like like I think a fair amount of Marvel movies love them. 
Like a lot of them were like the action sequences. Like, all right, I've seen this before. Yeah, let's let's just go, let's just wait till we get to the character stuff. Right. Uh, like like the more recent ones, Captain Marvel, Far From Far, Spider-Man, Far From Home, even Black Panther to a certain extent. I was just like, all right, here's the action sequence. All right, all right, can we just get back to like the character stuff or the witty dialogue? So like I said, I think the thing about pacing that it's a question of uh, just working through what is interesting and what is compelling versus what is not interesting and compelling. So for me, the beginning of the story is like, yeah, you're 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 spending a lot of time with these characters in this world. But for me personally, I don't think there wasn't enough for me. There wasn't something for me to latch on to. Right. In terms of the character Mia, I didn't really feel like the story. The character was not resonating until you actually got to know, like the until there was like actual conflict. I think that's what. I guess my biggest complaint is that there just wasn't like enough conflict or tension early right. on. Right. It just t- it just really took its time. Like you're getting to know the art, <laughs> like like here's the art restoration and here's all the restoring art and all the architecture and here's all the like foibles of boarding school teen girl life and you know I'm sure there's an audience like that that would just love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um. For me personally, it wasn't until like you got to you got to see like the semblance of a of tension uh, is when my interests are peaking, which is about half the halfway point of the book. Okay, so like let me let me stop you right there then. The because like yes, like the the beginning is like a very big uh, trog through, but I think uh, when Tilly Walden is doing her art. Like, she is able to not only do pacing well, but also do pacing and stop the viewer at, like, key moments. So, like, for example, looking at this, uh, going through this book, right, uh, we have in the beginning uh, Mia, right, the main character, is being introduced. And she's going through, learning the ins and outs of the ships, learning the crew members. And then once we get to page 11... Right, they finally land on the ship, and boom, there we see a big splash page of the of the church or cathedral or whatever like they're going to help restore. I think that there, right, because that's the end of uh, well, not the end, but that's the end of like that present day story, and then from there we move on into the backstory of like Mia at the boarding school. I think that because of this big huge splash panel right here. We, of course, naturally have to stop and take in all of the art to see, like, the little details that she's doing. And then once we're done looking through that, then we turn to the next page. And then five years earlier, right, setting up that whole idea of, like, slowing down that pace. And then because of that splash page, slow it down even more. And then we get to jump into uh, a backstory. I think the... Um... Your brother, I've got your brother. That's a good point. I think with comics, there's it's important to distinguish. There's two types of pacing. One is visual pacing, and one is, I guess, for lack of a better term, story pacing. Story pacing. pacing. Yeah. Yeah. And my issue is more with the story narrative pacing, and that's that's more related to the act, like the characters, the conflict. There's a visual pacing. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's the book is Taylor Walden's like a master of that. Um. I think I think that's probably a good point. So the main reason why I, I I would argue the main reason why this book is really lauded 
And why mm. Tilly Walden deserves all the accolade is that the art in this book is gorgeous. Oh yeah, oh unbelievably so. Yeah, so let's let's <clears throat> let's take some time to break it down. How would you describe uh, Tilly Walden's art style? Uh, I mean, there's a very clear like manga influence to to the work. Uh, very very simplified, right, in terms of character designs because like looking at all the characters, they they essentially they essentially have the same face. Right. Uh, eyes are drawn very simply. Eyebrows. The only thing that really changes is the hairstyles of the characters or like added added accessories like uh, glasses, um, outfits, things of that nature. Which but, is funny because Tilly Walden says she normally draws more detail, intricate stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think for this comic, because it's a serialized webcomic. And I think one more comic, she she went to a more simple style. Just in order to keep up with the pacing of it. Okay, see, so, like, again, this is the first Tilly Walden book I've read. So I haven't read Spinning or what's the other book she has? Same uh, here. Um, but let's just, let's just... I should have done this comparison before we started recording. Yeah, we should have. Uh, the hey, end of summer. You learn, this... you, learn, you learn as we learn. Isn't that right? great? Isn't it right? It it, it it makes us feel connected, right? Us with the audience. I'm sure. I'm sure they're out there booing. I was like, no, don't get your shit. To get your shit. <laughs> uh, not, they're not booing us. They're saying boo urns, boo urns. So like, I'm looking at spinning, and it's also simplified in terms of characters. Uh, yeah, similar similar to this. So I wonder if looking at the end of summer or I love this part is where she's mentioning that idea of like more intricate details because like the intricate details are all in these backgrounds, not in the characters themselves, which makes the world interesting. Um, looking at like the space rocks, the the layout of the of the of the boarding school, the spaceship is a flying fish like these are very interesting things like hell, even the foliage on uh what is it called that rock planet the staircase like even that's amazing and you have these gorgeous splash pages of just gorgeous backgrounds like that cathedral the staircase the the uh boarding school or there's this one uh i'm gonna show it to phil can you see it uh what page oh yes when uh elliot Elliot, yeah elliot's in the bowels of the ship and you see all the machinery around them Right, and they're uh, doing and they're doing the work of like putting the electricity together. So because of the electricity that they're working on, right, almost creates like a halo, which is uh, even more fascinating. How would you describe the use of colors in this book? Which I think is the really strong point. Yeah, I mean, I I think the use of colors is dope. I think, I mean, of course, this is a webcomic, right? In the beginning, there was, like, a narrative understanding of using, like, purples and then for the flashbacks, blue. But I guess at some point, uh, Tilly Walden wanted to explore more and more. And we start to see less of that, like, hard purple in the present. And it starts to become more, like, exploratory with yellows and reds, oranges. Again, moving away from that purple that we see in the very beginning. I mean, it shows up here and there, but it's not as prominent as it was like in the the, the first one fourth of the book. So this is what she was asked about this in an interview I dug up. So she mm. said every chapter has a core color, 
mm-hmm. usually being blue, orange, or pink. Mm-hmm. And then every scene, she picks some highlight colors. Mm. Uh, but certain scenes, it gets a little more complicated. When there's a, she says, when there's a particularly emotional moment or something of very narrative significance, uh, she changes the colors up from the core scene. And you can also see it too on the web on the so this is actually we're gonna deviate from our usual recommendation. Not only can you get to this for your local comic book store, you can also get it online for free. Yes. Uh on the I'm sure you can go on a Sunbeam, it's uh, comic. But like even if you go to the page, very simple, simple web design, like the each chapter, there's like each chapter bookmark. It's just a circle with some background scene from each chapter well like the striking thing is that each chapter is correlated a different color like chapter one and two is purple chapter three is blue you know chapter six is pink so on and forth. Right. and then more or less matches the colors in each chapter uh but let's go back to that um this is a cool device that i really like that is i think something where comics are at its strongest, you had, you had these two timelines, right? Right. You have the present timeline, you have the backstory. One of the main differences between them is the use of color, right? Because the, correct me if I'm wrong, the flashback is mainly in blue. Yes. Pair of timelines in like orange or purple. Yes. Which I think is really cool. It speaks to the power of comics that you can create this kind of subjective reality with something as simple as a color change. Yes. Which, again, goes back to that idea of visual storytelling in which uh, we as the audience are able to distinguish the fact that, oh, these colors represent present, these colors represent past without having to always get like a little bit of like, oh, five years, five years in the in the past. Oh, now we're back to the present. Right. Uh, Which we tend to see in a lot of movies that tell us like locale. Yeah, like the closest you see that in TV and movies is they they have to put they change the lighting they put a filter on. Mm-hmm. Like um, I think I'll be the first person to ever bring these two things in comparison. Uh, Little Women, My Great Gilbert, and the Cinemax show Banshee. <laughs> 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 I think there's not a lot of audience overlap between those two things, but that's I'm one of those. So like Little Women, uh, one of the big things she was lauded for in that she. She took this straightforward narrative and made two timelines cross-cutting. Mm-hmm. And then the past timeline is in blue and the present timeline. No, no. The past timeline is in orange, reflecting like kind of nostalgic warm memories. And the current oh. timeline, when they're all poor and struggling, is in blue. Mm. Uh, Banshee makes it even more straightforward in that like the flashbacks for the main character are in like uh more ethereal like it's got like that dream-like looking you know you know what i mean right that dream yeah 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 it's it's, the colors are way muted it's like usually like a gray or like a gray or greenish and then once we get to the present it becomes more saturated the colors are a lot more brighter yep so greg gerwig and cinemax give us money (laughs) he's plugging both your your works all right um and something really important. I think the motivation for the colors that Tilly Water was talking about mm-hmm. is really important. It got her motivation for telling the story is that she said it herself. She doesn't really consider herself a sci-fi person. She said she doesn't like sci-fi, really. Uh, I'll give the quotes. 
Uh, it was mo- because she doesn't like sci-fi. She didn't really like sci-fi because it was mostly a just like white men, white dudes. Okay. But also like it's a lot of like sterile white hallways. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of the sci-fi aesthetic. I think most people think of it's like, you know, it's like kind of the iPod. Like super clean, everything's white. Yeah, like super, uh, like future, futuristic, modern, or whatever. It's yeah, called. yeah. Or it's like, you know, there's like just a bunch of like Star Trek. There's a bunch of consoles and machinery everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, boop, 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 beep, beep. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't mind that. Um, yeah, no idea. That's because I have a lot of Star Trek noises are ingrained in my head because I watch, I've watched so much Star Trek. But like the the idea is that it's very technological, it's very mechanical. It's like it can be code or even not inviting because that's what space is like, right? The expanse, perfect example. Like it's space is harsh, right? Everything is dirty. Yeah. Uh, go watch the expanse, everybody. If you're not yes, please it. go watch the expanse on Amazon. But also at the same time, the expanse shows essentially space looks like uh I don't know what's dirty uh Staten Island, New Jersey. <laughs> That's, that's 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 what space looks like apparently. Uh, but uh, the Tilly Walden, with her coloring choices and the way she drew it, she te- she said she intentionally tries to make space look like a warm, inviting environment, which I think she accomplishes really well with not only just the colors, right? Because these are really kind of gorgeous looking, generally a warm color palette, I would say. Yes. But also like the fact that it's like it's they're not flying in a ship. It's a it's like a fish thing living whale, whale like, fish yeah it, it seems like they don't and she doesn't really get into the details the other thing about like you can tell she really doesn't care for a lot of the normal sci-fi conventions she doesn't <laughs> care to explain any of the mechanics of the world or setting not that we need to it works just fine right. but like the fact the fact that like the, the ship itself is a fish this is like very much and like inside the ship you know there's it looks just kind of like an ordinary house today even the boarding school, like, it looks like more, like, you will be hard-pressed to tell that it looks like it's a sci-fi boarding school ship in space, because it's more or less, like, the focus is in all these rooms and interiors that look like any other school, the library, gyms, etc. I mean, kind of, sort of-ish. I think it's because of, like, the boarding school has, like, extremely high ceilings, so, like, whenever uh tilly walden pulls like the camera back and we see like the whole interior right in comparison to like the figures it's like oh snap this this area of the school has a train right and distinguishing itself from those trains like we can see like trees waterfalls things of that nature almost as if like this is in this earth so not only do we have the trees but we also have like buildings for the station uh also signifying that we have the that gym area where they play this made-up game called lux which kind of looks like like quidditch but on like miniature miniature uh fish (laughs) big huge area because of course the 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 miniature fish are flying around the area um very clean right the blues are a lot lighter now in order to like get that whole like shine of the white going on, even though as you just said, she doesn't like the uh, the use of whites that's going on there. So yeah, uh, I think like well that's kind of the point is that she she's designed this world in a way that does make sense. Like if people have been living in space for as long as they have, then why wouldn't you make why would you design everything to look as com- to be as comfortable and resembling as like Earth life as much as you could? 
Right. Which I mean, which is always like, you know, the, the most successful sci-fi stories are always the ones where the objects look like something that can exist within our world. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think I think I will admit I think that's part also part of the salon to like get into the look in that the first half, it doesn't really resemble or feel like a sci-fi story at all. Right. And that it it takes a while, I think, for you to just it's, it took me a while to like really adjust my expectations of the story and uh, kind of buy into what it did, which I eventually did. I don't know if you really need to take 169 pages to learn the backstories of the characters, <laughs> which I should bring up the reason why that happens is that I did some digging uh, until he Walden admitted that when she started the story, she had no idea where it was going. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Because, like, yo, like, this is a lot of rambling going on. Like, she didn't have, like, a straight path going on. Like, she had, like, an idea and just wanted to run with it. But it wasn't until, like, we get to that that end and then, like, oh, we see Grace and Mia, like, really connect. Then she was like, all right, boom. I understand this is where the story is going to go. It's going to be a love story, separate, come back, bing, bang, boom. That, that was the whole idea. Because this beginning part, it was like, yo, extremely middling. What you call it, meandering? Yes, meandering. I don't know yeah. why I got, I was thinking of Beth Midler. I, yo, uh, shout out to God. Uh, um, <laughs> well, well middling, middling is a word. It means like mediocre. I mean, it is a very meandering narrative. But she's talking about, like, the reason why is that she was just, I think she was more into like drawing the characters and the designs and the artwork mm-hmm. than she was coming. She's in the right south that she doesn't. She she likes the art more than do the actual writing. Yeah, the writing that makes she, sense. Like, she's like coming up with visuals first, then coming up with a narrative afterwards, hmm. which I think makes for very gorgeous images. Uh, you know, like we just said, if it takes you like 169 pages to <laughs> learn the backstories, I think. You're really gonna test a lot of people's patience. You but, are. You know, there's, there's 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 an audience for this, I guess. So this is the other thing I want to bring up. The people who the audience for this, and you can tell by the back of the book, all the quotes. Right. It's a lot of people who don't normally read comics. Like the three, the big three names on the back of the book recommending it: mm-hmm. Arthur Wells and Becky Becky Chambers. These are prose authors. These are not comics people. Oh, see, but then you got the. You got Brian K. Vaughn on the Brian K. Vaughn on the on the front, right above the cover, right above the title. Yeah, Saga Paper Girls. Yeah, Saga Paper Girls. Lost for those of you Lost fans. Uh, I former Lost fan. That's me. <laughs> former Lost fan. There we go. Piss off some more people. Uh, uh, also, Ex Machina. Our great book, underrated. Yes, Ex Machina. Uh, Why the Last Man? Why the Last Man? Fantastic. Uh, a bunch of other stuff, but. So I want to bring it up, right? Because we, because we're talking about me, before the show, me, me and Phil are gonna do blankets next episode. <laughs> oh yes, oh yeah. So like it, in like the kind of mid two thousands, kind of two thousand era, there was like a big, another comics publishing boom. That was all like these these graphic memoirs, right? The Persepolis, Fun Home, Blankets. Uh, uh, more or less, that's that. Well, and yeah, like. Yeah. They were able to like kind of transcend out of quote unquote comics into respectable literary publishing graphic novel, right? Which I'm not going to go into my feelings about that, <laughs> uh, because they were they reach an audience that would normally not read comics, or at least what they think comics are. So I think there's a question about like 
the audience that for Tilly Walden's book are most are mainly not a lot of comics readers. So, well, I kind of want to hear your thoughts about that. Um, is it? Because I can't I can't think about this. It's like how much of this is that like it's on them for not reading enough comics versus well, how much is it is on the comics world for not having a book before not them? Not having a book before them. Yeah, I I don't know. It's in this strange like middle ground because like you mentioned before, all those like memoirs. And then I'm thinking about my time in college and I had to read Mouse twice because you, mean, you, you had to, you mean you got, you, you got to read Mouse twice. Yes. I got to read Mouse twice. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to read Mouse twice and which, right. I had to read Mouse for an English class. And then I also had to read Mouse for my uh, graphics novel class. I mean, graph what was it? Uh, graphic illustration class. And both classes, right, uh, they're talking about the story. Of, but, of course, one is talking about the visual storytelling, right, the idea of uh, Art Spiegelman using uh, Mouse to represent the Jews, dogs to represent the Americans, cats to represent the Nazis, while at the... On the other end of the of the spectrum, right, for my English class, we're over here talking about the work of the narration that's going on within the, the words, right? Not just looking at the physical, but also reading about what Art Spiegelman is writing about and how he's able to combine these two things, right? The words and the art, of course, which, I mean, it's comics, right? They, these things need to work in, interdependently of each other. And this does that i mean of course there's a lot of like silence going on within here but i'm pretty sure if you were to take out the dialogue within that last half of the book we would have no idea what is really happening especially for the uh elliot character because they are introduced as a mute and then towards that end um spoilers uh they begin to talk and we get to learn their backstory, which is not 469 pages. It's more like four or five pages. <laughs> Four, 400, <laughs> 450 plus pages. Yeah, but I but mean, that was that's that's a that's a payoff that was done well. I think. It was. It was. Yeah. Unlike unlike Alma and Char, which is just learning basic backstory, <laughs> right? And actually, in like if if I had learned this earlier, I would have given me more reasons to understand the character and care about this one, Elliot. That was uh, the mystique and mystery was intentional. Mm-hmm. Unlike, you know, Alma Char, like we just said, telling Walden just did. was <laughs> figuring out the book as she was going for the first 200 pages or so. Sorry, what were you saying about, yeah, uh, intersection? About, yeah, the, um, the inter, interdisciplinary. Oh, God, I keep so many words tongue tied. There we go. The interdis, uh, interconnection, right? That's going on between the the words and the panels, right? Because every time, because when when did Mouse come out? Mouse came out like early nineties, late 80s. late eighties, late 80s, early nineties. Yeah, mid eighties, somewhere that. Somewhere around there, right? And every time, the every time a graphic novel were to come out like this, right? The the public the literary world blows their mind, like oh my god, this is the comics, this is the comic we've all been looking for, blah blah blah. But again. From Mouse, right, during that, that mid to late 80s, all the way to today, there are tons of comics in between that are doing that. And every time it comes out, they're always, like, having their mind blown, can't believing this is happening, right? Because, of course, when they think of comics, they think of Superman, Batman, Captain America, Iron Man. But that's just the beauty of the comics medium. You can tell any type of story, any type of way. Uh, I mostly agree with that. Uh, I think at the same time, there is, like, 
there was like a legitimate void for like you know it was, it was kind of just mostly just mouse and like what, what else what else said there it was like really... it, was, it was mouse and persepolis that's that that was it well, i mean i mean the decades between them oh the decades in between them oh okay yeah, there's like you know Stuck Rubber Baby, Howard Cruz, but that kind of I think they kind of kind of got overlooked. Yeah. Oh <laughs> wait, what about uh, American Splendor? When did that come out? The 2000. Well, the, that was a long running strip for decades. Uh, I think the book came out in like early 2000s. Okay. But even then, that's just like so. There's you know that's the thing. It's like the underground comics thing, right? And now we're kind of in the age of like traditional publishing. It's kind of got in on it. And I have, like, mixed feelings about it, because on the one hand, you know, I'm glad that there's an audience for Honest Sunbeam that normally wouldn't, you know, they w- couldn't get into comics otherwise, because, like, they don't want to read Mouse, they don't want to read superheroes, maybe, I guess they don't want to read manga either, <laughs> uh, right? They want to read about, like, the, the YA stuff we talked about, they want to read about girls in boarding school and queer non-binary, non-binary romances, and that's only just now starting to emerge, which is good. Yeah, yeah it is. Diversity, like, narr- diversity yeah. narrative is good for everybody. Right, because we, we're starting to see the smiles. We're starting to see the babysitter club. Well, not babysitter club, but smile. Well, we're, we're seeing that, too. We're seeing that, yeah. too. Okay so, okay, so the babysitter clubs, the As a Crow Fly, like, books of those nature, um, which is starting to, I mean, of course, make an appearance. I mean, they've always been there, but now it's like the, the platform that they're on are a lot larger now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the same time, it is really annoys me because as someone who's been querying agents and been trying to break into publishing for the past year or so, like the publishing industry in general is still really slow <laughs> when it comes up with the comics. There are very few. It's still mostly like YA. Well, YA is the big driver, but it's still mostly YA. Y- YA, memoir, and MA. Yeah. Uh, wait, what's M.A.? I mean, uh, M.A., um, M.G., sorry, middle grade. Middle grade, right? There's still not a lot of, there's very few imprints of, like, of adults, uh, even fewer for, like, genre books, which is what me and Phil are trying to do, <laughs> which is so weird because at the same time you have, like, the image explosion, right? Like, that's where all the adult genre stuff is just, like, booming and, like, I guess the point I'm making is that there's there's like there's there's audiences who would like who would just go nuts for honest on me, but would never read like Mr. Mirko, for example. Right, which is probably like one of the the best books of the what was that last year? Uh, 2018. Year. 2018. 2018. 2018. Yeah. yeah. And like, and it's like it's it's this amazing store comedy that does just as many amazing things with form, but nobody would people would not would never turn people would. When I say people, I mean all you agents and all you editors listening to this, which are probably none of you. <laughs> but like, they would never read it because, like, oh, it's a it's a superhero book. That's DC Comics. Why would I read it's that? DC Comics, right? Yeah. And the other thing is that, like, I'm learning that a lot of people in the industry just don't read it. Just aren't very knowledgeable about comics. <laughs> they just don't read a lot of comics in general. Right. Which is crazy though, because when you really think about it, right? The even now, Marvel, DC, they're starting to like tap into to those YA markets. Uh DC, right? You had the the Mirror book, Shadow Shadow of the Bat, um uh, what was uh, it? The the Raven, Justice... Beast Boy, Supergirl. Right, uh, the the yeah. Justice League, uh Dear Justice League book. Um Marvel, they have their their uh more 
YA or kid-friendly comics with uh, IDW. Uh, what is it called? Marvel Adventures, right? You had uh, Captain Marvel by uh, Sweeney Boo, the uh, Black Panther stuff, um, and the Star Wars Adventures as well. So, I mean, of course, like, you know, kids like these properties. Why not do books that target towards them? I mean, adults, of course, like these properties because they grew up with these properties as children. So, of course, it's going to grow with them. Like, it just needs to be an understanding of, like, you know, there's enough room in terms of both the medium and subject matter for everyone to enjoy that we tend to forget about. Um. It's just, it's just unfortunately the industries on both sides, publishing well, and comics, are not it's too slow to catch up. Right, which is crazy because when you think of a company, right, the company you want to go ahead and have like the most cutting edge technology possible in order to keep up with the times, right? Like, is, is that a, is, is that not a fact? Yes or no? Sorry, repeat repeat that question. I didn't quite understand. Okay, so companies try to have cutting edge technology to keep up with the times, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Especially these companies. These are what you would call creators of culture. Exactly, right? So why not, at the same time, go with the time like, oh, graphic novels are becoming more and more mainstream. Oh, we need to keep up with how people are receptive to graphic novels within our business in order to make it easier to have these uh, stories break out into... Uh, into stores, into under our imprint, and things of that nature. So Tilly Wallen actually talks about that with Sunbeam, because it being a webcomic, it means that she just got to do this on her own without publisher oversight. Right. And she said, like, A, it allowed her to just tell her the story she wanted to tell. But B, she also said that, like, she didn't have to wait, like, six months for a publisher to, like, approve everything. <laughs> like, she could just put it out on her own. Right. But here, cool. we, here we get to the truth of why don't we see more like that? She said... In multiple interviews, that she was lucky she could put it as a webcom because she had the financial stability to do so. Yeah, which I mean, not everyone is able to have the, have that. So I mean, man, so there we go. Is, so there we go. That was the other little bit of professional jealousy because we were learning about Tilly Walden in school. You know, this breakout star at like twenty five. Is that like, hey, that could be me. I, I, we could be like the next Tilly Walden. And then we found out, like, well, the reason why Tilly Walden could do that is. Uh, she had family support, I guess. I guess she comes from a well-off family. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, that's why you get with an eyes there at like 20, 23. Mm, <laughs> you know, well, if you don't have to work for a living and you can devote all your time to comics. Yeah, which, I mean... It's not her fault. Capitalism's fault. It's capital, make... capitalism's fault. Okay. Yeah. But, okay. I mean, yeah, it, you know, she was able to get the look of the draw to have very supportive parents to go ahead and help her back her dream. Right. Not not everyone's fortunate to have that. But, you know, we all got to make our way through uh, this crazy life and uh, on a sunbeam. Go ahead. Read it. If you don't want to buy this uh, massive tome. Right. Read the webcomic. 500. Yeah. 500 plus pages. But, yeah, you can read it for free on her website. Yeah. So here uh, go. And then I think it's a good time to end it with two fun, two funny stories. Yeah, not about Tilly Wallet on a Sunbeam, but kind of some of the uh, kind of adjacent to, to Tilly Wallet and something and her impact on the industry. So uh, I'm not going to name any names for this first story. So we have a buddy who recently just landed a huge deal for his for his for his YA book, 
And he was telling he was telling us about when he was meeting with editors and pitching to editors. One of which was Tilly Walden's editor. Uh, and I not gonna name her name. But he basically she basically said, Well, I like your I like the story, but I don't like the art. Can you make it more like, you know, two-tone color? And he was very confused by this art suggestion. Then eventually he realized, oh, basically you want me. You want to look like Tilly, look like Tilly Walden. That's Tilly Walden's book because a, that's the only, that's the only comic you read, <laughs> and b, that's the only, it's because Tilly Walden so well. Right. And the thing about annoyed me, and he met a lot of editors who gave the same feedback, and that the only comics they read are Tilly Walden, or Randy Tillemeyer, or Jelly Tamaki. <laughs> and the thing about our buddy's art is that it's not like he has some like weird esoteric art style. It's a mixture of Bruce Tim and Mike Mignola. And if you don't know Bruce who they Tim, are... Mike Mignola and, and Darwin Cook. Yeah. And if you don't know who they are, we're the and you work in comics publishing, they're like, what kind of sad life do you live? All right, come on. You know, that's just sad. All right. Yeah. Um, like, especially Mignola and Bruce Tim. Like, come on, Bruce Tim animated your favorite cartoons. Well, well obviously, they meant they didn't watch it growing up, uh, which would be one thing, but it's also like, these are these are not obscure these are not obscure not unappealing arts art styles so you know like i said like read 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 till you all in but read more stuff too yeah expand your horizon if if me and eric could sit here and read on the sunbeam right even though it's not like you know targeted towards us and still enjoy it right what does it say about you think about that yeah Ah. think about that but don't think about it when we're, we're reading our pitch packets. Just think only <laughs> <laughs> All right. Second, we have a funnier, we have a much funnier story uh, about Tilly Walden's spinning. Uh, so we, one of our professors in grad school, a cartoonist named T. Bowie, uh, at the same time had her own memoir come out, uh, The Best We Can Do. And they were both up for Eisner's that year for best reality-based work. Uh, and, and we, and we, uh, talked to both T and one of our other professors, Justin Hall. I was like, hey, Justin, you know, who did you, Tilly Walden won the Eisner for Best Reality. And we asked him, how did you vote? And it's just like, oh yeah, Tilly Walden winning the award. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, first off, you know, it's a great book, but I voted for her and I voted for her in the other book. But like this book, reality, like T's book is a book we need now. And he thought like, and he, said, he was like, well, this is a big thing about Tilly Walden's young. She has her whole career ahead of you, but and you know she's gonna have plenty of time to win accolades. That was bullshit. <laughs> she won the best memoir. I mean, and then uh, with T. Bowie, she was not angry about it. We just I asked her about it. And she was like, "Oh, I forgot to vote, <laughs> and I forgot to tell other people to vote for me to vote for me in the Eisners that year." Right, which which is extremely funny when you really hear that because it's like, yo, that's how far out the idea of winning awards was from T Bowie because she just she just wanted to like make her comic. She just put it out there. It wasn't all about the awards, but it was very funny hearing uh Justin Hall's uh reaction to that. Yeah. And then I really enjoy your kinda like your joke reaction about T Bowie. Uh like like saying like, yeah, you know what we're gonna do we're gonna do it for you T? We're gonna start some beef. We're gonna start beef, right? Like I mean it, it would <laughs> like, make like, sense, right? Because yeah. like, like, like you know like all the like all the like the hip hop rap like, stars hip- back in the day. Yeah, like hip hop rap stars, they would they would start beef in order to like up sales, right? Start beef, we could up both sales, right? Like you know, it's it it would it would look weird from the outside, but on the inside, it's like yo, this marketing strategy right here, you know, that's that's how you, that's how you make the money. Exactly, and, but, T, and of course T would never do that. T is too nice. 
Of course. But luckily, me and Phil had no such connections. <laughs> <laughs> we would just go around to conventions with our crew, right? We go yeah. meet up with like Tilly Walden's crew. Start and life. start start doing like breakdancing battles as if it was like nineteen eighties, right? Just like bring on the the Kango hats, and yeah, the, and the and the starter jackets. Woo! I want to. Dang, I need a starter jacket. Yeah, and you'd be like, hey, you know, you beat our professor. Boom, boom. <laughs> Fuck your ice skating. It would be like, uh, it would be like, what's that? Uh, it would be like Beat Street. Yeah. I don't know what that is. You never seen Beat Street? No. Oh my god! That just like ruined my credibility even more now with our listeners. I mean, I I feel like Beat Street is a it's an old movie. It's probably outside of your range of movies, but I highly recommend Beat Street or Beat Wild. Street. Yeah, it's a, it's look, a great, look great dancing up. movie. Uh, okay. 1984 American dance drama. All right, hip hop culture break dance teaching. Produced by Harry Belafonte, Stan Lathan, starring Ray Day Chong. Oh boy. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's not a musical, is it? No, it's not you, a musical. You don't sing? No. All right. Well, maybe I'll watch it. I'll think about it. I'll add it to the list. Uh, Grandmaster Mel and the Furious Five as themselves. Oh, yeah. DJs. All right. And rappers. I guess. I guess. I guess they do sing. I mean, not sing. They rap. That's, that doesn't count as singing. That doesn't sound. All right. Oh, okay. There we go. Perfect so, way. So. Perfect way to end our story <laughs> on award winning. <laughs> On the Sunbeam is with an obscure 80s hip-hop breakdancing movie. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Wild Style. Go watch Wild Style as well. <laughs> All right. And, you know, thank you, Phil, for plugging that in. Hopefully we'll get some money from them. Uh, maybe. I doubt it, but whatever. Uh- <laughs> All right. So on that note, uh, that's an episode. That's a wrap on, on a Sunbeam. I'm Eric Wong. I'm Phil Fleming, and uh, we're the two life crew. Yeah. Keep up with no that 80s thing. See, you have no idea. Get out of here. Get out of here. We're supposed to do, like, our thing is 90s, early 2000s TV shows. Well, too bad. We're an 80s hip-hop group now. We're the two life crew. <laughs> <laughs>